Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. What would happen if a country's banking system shut down altogether? How much harm might it cause to the economy? It's quite reasonable to guess that such an event would bring the economy to a screeching halt. Today we're going to see what actually happened in Ireland in 1970, when all of the banks closed for over six months, only to find themselves quickly and fairly seamlessly replaced by local pubs. We'll discuss if something like this could work again, and at the end of the video we'll compare how the system that emerged compares to more modern ideas like cryptocurrencies. So between 1966 and 1976 there were three major banking strikes in Ireland, in which all of the clearing banks were closed. The strike in 1970 was the longest of the three, where the banks were entirely closed for six and a half months. In the lead-up to the strike, bank staff had been working short hours and a backlog in cheque processing had built up. Additionally, while the banks technically reopened in mid-November of 1970, it took them until February of 1971 to process the backlog of cheques and resume normal working hours. So all in all, the banks in Ireland were either closed or offering severely reduced services for almost an entire year. Most economists would predict that in the scenario that Ireland faced in 1970, you'd likely see a collapse in the money supply, a credit crunch, a trade implosion, mass unemployment, a collapse in GDP and a return to a system of barter. In fact, when the strike began, some international newspapers at the time referred to Ireland as a banana republic. I think that was supposed to be an insult, but in 1970s Ireland, a banana was considered an exotic fruit, and if you want to insult us, you're just going to have to do a little bit better than that. As you can imagine, economists were shocked to see that the economy actually did just fine. In fact, it even grew. Although the money supply did contract severely, neither trade, commerce, nor industry came to a grinding halt. Now, there were some problems, but overall, the Irish economy escaped largely unscathed. So how did things work? Well, when the banks closed, there was still a certain amount of paper money that was out there in the economy. And it, of course, stayed circulating in the economy since the people who held cash were unable to deposit it at banks. So some money was still available and could be used for trade. Next up, the pubs and local shops of Ireland came into play. Particularly in rural areas, but in truth all over the country, publicans and shopkeepers knew their customers well. They knew who they could trust and who was untrustworthy. In addition, they knew where their customers lived and worked. According to the Central Bank of Ireland, 11,000 pubs and 12,000 local shops stepped in and acted as bank substitutes over the duration of the strike. In 1970, I guess we learned that in Ireland, a good pub might actually be more important than a banking system. And I'm guessing that people found sorting out their finances a lot more fun than when the actual banks were open. It's worth noting that when the strike started, there was no way of knowing how long it would last. 
So while the economy generally functioned as normal, some of this was due to a belief that the banks would most likely reopen in the next few days, and that idea just dragged on month after month. In addition, banking in the 70s was a lot simpler than it is today. There were no electronic payment systems like the credit and debit cards that we use, and things like direct deposits weren't used very much at all. People and businesses mostly transacted using cash and cheques. According to the Central Bank of Ireland, 90% of manufacturers and construction companies in the country paid most wages and salaries in cash back in the 60s and 70s. Before the strike, about half of Irish households received their income in cash, and then due to the strike, this proportion rose to around 60%. So cash was important during the strike, but cheques were even more important. The Irish economy was able to keep going because people paid each other using cheques that were drawn on accounts at the banks which were closed. When they ran out of official cheques, they paid using IOUs. So why were the Irish able to get by like this without the need for banks? Well, it turns out that Ireland in the 1970s was unusually well set up for a situation like this. Antoine Murphy at Trinity College Dublin described the Irish economy of the time as being characterised by intense, frequent personal contact, where solid local knowledge circulated at high velocity within and across communities. The result was that both borrowers and lenders could build solid micro-foundations of trust. Basically, the idea is that when you've been chatting with your neighbours every night at the local pub for the last 20 years, you've a pretty good instinct as to whether their cheques are a good bet or not. In addition, you know just how much to discount an IOU to earn a fair return that neither damages your friendships nor costs you money. If you're an Irish pub owner and you've been chatting with your customers, you know their families, you've been occasionally extending them credit over the years, then you're even better positioned to become a banker in a country without banks. And that's exactly the role that pubs began to play. A publican named John Dempsey was quoted at the time in the papers as saying, I'm holding cheques for thousands of pounds, but I'm not worried. The last bank strike went on for 12 weeks and I didn't have a single bouncer. I deal only with my regulars. I refuse strangers. I suppose I've been able to keep a few local factories going. Over the period of the strike, the people of Ireland were either able to use cash or cheques to pay each other. A personalised credit system developed without any definite time horizon for the eventual clearance of debits and credits. This adequately substituted for the existing institutionalised banking system over the period of the strike. After a while, people ran out of official bank cheques and just made their own. Official bank cheques at the time in Ireland, and still today, have a government stamp on them, which is basically a tax on each payment. When people ran out of their official cheques, they started putting a postage stamp on the new homemade ones to make sure that they were in compliance with the law. In pubs, the insides of cigarette packets suddenly became bills of exchange as patrons dumped out the cigarettes, wrote up a cheque, stuck a postage stamp on it and handed it over to the bartender. At Dunn's, one of Ireland's largest retail chains, people would line up outside the accounts department to cash cheques. News reports from the time describe a schoolteacher lined up with his monthly salary cheque, 
followed by a bookkeeper from a local manufacturing firm presenting a much larger cheque to change into cash for wage packets. The accountant at Dunn's told the newspapers, they're mostly strangers to us and we just have to play it by ear in deciding whether to accept a cheque or not. In the days before modern security systems, small shopkeepers worried about storing these valuable pieces of paper. One publican in Dublin's Liberties apparently stored a pile of cheques up his chimney in the summer and didn't tell his wife. She lit the fire on the first cold September evening and when he realised his cheques had gone up in smoke he had a heart attack. So what happened to all of the bankers who were on strike? Well, the strike impacted Irish bankers in a number of ways. The union called a strike but there was no strike pay for the bankers. Many of them emigrated to England where they could work and some but not all returned to Ireland after the strike. The singer Christy Moore, who started out as a banker, went to England due to a strike but didn't return to banking when the strike was settled. He told a reporter, I had a wild and wonderful time in England with no bank manager looking over my shoulder. He formed a band and the rest is history. In 2007, he was named as Ireland's greatest living musician in the People of the Year Awards. While the abiding memory of the bank shutdown is of how people adapted and survived, not everything ran smoothly. Because of the lack of banking services, businesses had to divert staff to run around to shops and pubs looking for cash to pay wages. This could be a slow process and it meant that many businesses had to shoulder the additional costs of having employees focused on this task rather than on their core business. The Irish stock market suffered too. Trading volumes fell overall by about one third. This was more concentrated in the early stages of the closure though. Most subsequent business was transacted on a deferred payment basis. Prices were agreed, cheques were issued and accepted by brokers in the normal way, but documents of title were not delivered until the cheques were cleared. Interest payments on government bonds couldn't be paid and pensioners who relied on bond coupons and dividends suffered. The registers of ownership were held in the Bank of Ireland's vaults and were inaccessible at the time, causing financial hardship for many retirees. Property deals of all kinds were blocked, not only by the difficulty in transferring funds, but because many title documents were kept in bank vaults which were inaccessible. Business investment into fixed capital was negatively affected too. 20% of manufacturing firms reported being obliged to cut back or postpone capital projects. Financing investment was a problem mainly for smaller companies with less than 100 employees. Many construction projects were postponed, but some of this was due to a cement strike that happened at the same time. It's surprising to see that even foreign trade took less of a hit than might be expected. Less than 10% of manufacturing firms had to import less due to payment problems caused by the bank strike. Many businesses that were involved in international trade were able to bank in Northern Ireland or Great Britain. And when it came to paying for imports, companies with exports kept some of their earnings with foreign banks and were able to pay for imports. Real per capita GDP growth was somewhat subdued over the period, but there were other strikes as well, in particular the cement strike I mentioned earlier that affected the construction industry. 
The overall picture that emerges from this period, though, is of an economy that continued to function relatively well without any clearing banks. So what about fraud? Over the period of the strike, it's estimated that 10 million cheques and IOUs with a total value of 3 billion Irish pounds, which was about $5 billion at the time, changed hands in Ireland without any clearing or settlement. As you can imagine, there was a lot of opportunity for fraud there. People in Ireland were hard up at the time too. There was high unemployment and the reason for the strikes, which were not restricted to the banking sector, was the high level of inflation, which meant that people's incomes were not keeping up with their expenses. A well-known racehorse trainer at the time didn't have the money needed but wanted to buy a horse. He paid by cheque knowing that he didn't have the funds to meet it. Fortunately for him, the horse won a number of races, meaning that he had no trouble honouring the cheque and made a handsome profit, without having to pay any interest for a very risky venture. The number of frauds investigated when the banks reopened was reported to have soared 10 times, which obviously is a huge increase. But the actual number of cases might surprise you. There were only 750 cases investigated in a country of 3 million people. Nonetheless, when the next Irish bank strike came six years later, memories of bouncing cheques were still in many publicans' minds. Summing up the more cautious mood in 1976, one publican hung a sign behind the bar that read, when the banks start serving booze, we'll start cashing cheques. After the strike ended, there was an increase in the number of bankruptcies and liquidations of businesses in Ireland. A large shipping and transportation company, Palgrave Murphy, failed when settlements were made. But reports from the Times say that its failure was largely unrelated to the strike. The Irish bank strike of 1970 is a fascinating experiment in monetary economics. At first glance, the relative benign effects of the strike seem to support the view that money and credit are close substitutes. For the period of the strike, credit replaced money to a surprising extent, vindicating those who see credit as an almost perfect substitute for money. However, a thorough inspection of this period does show that towards the end of the strike, severe strains were appearing in the system. The economy had changed such that everyone was now acting as a bank. It's worth taking a moment to think about how it works when you accept a cheque in return for goods and services. In such a transaction, you're exposed to credit risk until you've deposited the cheque at your bank and the funds have cleared. This means that you're exposed to a few days of credit risk. In Ireland, with the banks closed, there was no clearing and settlement. Without this happening, there was a rising mountain of bilateral debt between members of society. Because of the bank strike, households and companies could not really participate in the economy without accumulating more and more cheques. Since the cheques couldn't usually be passed on to third parties, they weren't in circulation. That means that workers who were paid by cheque couldn't usually pass on their paychecks. They had to keep them until the banks reopened. Then to pay for their daily purchases, they had to write their own personal checks. Retailers who accepted the checks as payment for goods could not use these checks received from their customers to make payments to wholesalers. The majority of checks drawn on banks during the dispute were held either by the original payees or more rarely by individuals and firms with whom they were subsequently negotiated. 
Thus, all those active in the economy who couldn't rely on cash income to make payments were accumulating checks they had received, and at the same time the value of checks they had written was increasing more or less in parallel. Throughout the economy, the balance sheets of non-banks were getting longer and longer. Almost everyone became a banker. While early on you could easily assess the credit quality of people you dealt with based on how well you knew them and how honest you believed them to be, the quality of a check became increasingly difficult to assess over time. For example, a factory worker may be convinced that the business they work for is in good shape and their employer is honest, but over time the factory is accumulating the checks of its customers. So the financial position of the factory worker depends increasingly on their ability to evaluate the creditworthiness of their employer's customers. As long as the strike dragged out, this aspect became increasingly important. As I mentioned earlier, some of the credit risk inherent in a financial system like this did crystallise as there were some bankruptcies when everything was unwound, but it wasn't on such a scale as to be systemic. It's worth noting that this framework, which worked in Ireland, can't reasonably be applied to countries in which the solvency of the banks is in doubt. During the strike, the banks were closed, but they were expected to open in the not-so-distant future. The reason for the closure was not that the banks were in trouble. In this respect, the situation in Ireland differs from a more typical banking crisis, in which banks are closed because there's good reason to believe that the banks are insolvent. You might be asking yourself if such a system of local pubs filling in as banks could work today the way it worked in 1970. Well, most modern economies are very different to the Irish economy of the 1970s. Today, payments are mostly electronic and almost instant. Economies are more globalised and interdependent. Things just move at a much faster pace and businesses operate on a much larger scale. Think multi-billion dollar semiconductor factories instead of the smaller scale manufacturing that would have been going on in Ireland 50 years ago. People move around a lot more too and don't really know their neighbours the way they used to. It's hard to imagine that things would go as smoothly today as they did back then, but equally back then it was expected to be a disaster too. If you were in Ireland at the time of the banking strikes and have any good stories about your experiences, I'd love to read your stories in the comment section below. I made a video maybe six months ago on the topic of short selling. In the video I argued that I don't believe in it as a good long-term strategy. I based this argument on the empirical evidence that short selling funds generally don't do very well. But I also argued that it's generally a mistake to bet against people who are backed into a corner. Even if you find the worst managed company in the world that's operating in a terrible business, the employees and managers of that firm are most likely still coming into work every day, doing their best to add value and to make things work so that they can earn money and improve their station in life. The best investors that I know tend to be optimists, and situations like the Irish banking strike of 1970 show why this makes sense. Even in terrible situations, the people most impacted seem to find ways of getting things to work because their well-being depends on it. Instead of letting the bankers' strike collapse the nation's prosperity, the people of Ireland decided that they could simply get on with the day-to-day -day business of banking themselves. 
One of the things that I've been mulling over while researching this piece is that the most important element that helped sustain economic activity at the time was trust between contracting parties. In many cases, transactors knew each other, thus there was a widespread readiness to accept checks and IOUs, even though it was clear that settlement might not occur for quite some time. In recent years, blockchain technology has grown as a response to the trust crisis that swept the world in the wake of the financial crisis of 2007-2008. Bitcoin and other blockchain-based systems are put forth as a trustless alternative to existing financial institutions and even governments. Over the last decade, there have been a number of big frauds within the crypto space, and many of the biggest proponents of these trustless systems don't necessarily strike me as being particularly trustworthy people. I was in Houston this February when an unusually cold spell left many residents without power or water. The roads were treacherous and there was no salt spreaders or snowplows available. In this tough situation, where people were still trying to socially distance, neighbours helped each other out, those with generators invited neighbours in to stay warm and charge their phones. Those with plumbing skills went from house to house on their streets helping to fix burst pipes. People just helped each other out sharing water, supplies and food. Often when people prepare for difficult times they stockpile food and other resources and think up ways of escaping society imagining a dystopian Mad Max-like future. In most real-world examples it would appear that maybe the best way to prepare for difficult times is to develop strong friendships. Maybe trust is more important to a functioning society than trustless systems. Once again, I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts on this topic in the comments section. See you guys next week. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.